You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! David Spangler is a journeyer in the truest sense of journeying, going beyond the edge of the physical world into the vaster part of the universe, into inner realms, and finding there a collaborative partner David called John. For 27 years working together, David and John were able to introduce thousands of people worldwide to their own inner wisdom, to the sacredness of the sovereign human, and to the emerging holy work of collaboration between the physical and non-physical realms. David Spangler joins us tonight to talk about the experiences he has had since childhood until today, which are all written about in his beautiful autobiography, Apprenticed to Spirit. The Education of a Soul, Riverhead Books, 2011. And with that said, it's a pleasure to join David on 21st Century Radio. Thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, you know, it's actually my husband, Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and we'll talk about it after the show, um, did some things with you way back when, when you were both young men in the 60s. (laughs) I hope he remembers back that. (laughs) Well, you know, your book is is really beautiful. It it talks about an experience that many humans have but don't know how to articulate or are too afraid to talk about. So maybe you can begin with your early choices in life. And, And I think it would be right to honor your parents because they were obviously the gateway. Well, I, I did have special parents. Um, they both came out of the Midwest, uh, mom from Michigan, dad from Ohio, and they were um, a world people in the best sense. My, uh, my dad, um, during the early 50s, was part of the military and ended up being sent to Morocco. And uh, he'd been there for six months and brought mom and me over to join him and and that was was where I um, I spent my childhood was on this American air base not far from Casablanca, and it was you know, all through this period. In fact, all through my my childhood, I had these experiences of uh, contact with non physical aspects of reality, and I would try to talk with mom or dad about it. And, uh, and even when they didn't fully understand what I was trying to talk about, and I didn't have the words to, to really articulate it either, they were very supportive. They were um, real, um, um, what should I say, frontier people in being open to new ideas and new experiences. And they demonstrated that in their own lives over and over again. So I yes I I grew up in a household that was supportive of my individuality and of my particular set of of uh, talents and experiences. You describe in your book Apprentice to Spirit how as a child you saw energy forms around people houses objects and some people what what would you, is this in any way like clairvoyance is it something different from what somebody would call clairvoyance um that's <laughs> that's a very good question because um, 
over the years, I've discovered that clairvoyance is used to describe a, quite a wide variety of experiences. Um, I think it had elements in common with what people think of as clairvoyance in the sense of seeing color or seeing, um, seeing something emanating around uh, a, an object or a person. But most of the time, I, it was more something that I felt. And in the feeling of it, I mean, felt it like a pressure against my body. Uh, and in the feeling of it, it um, conveyed images to me. That is, I, I would have a sense of its, of its density, of its uh, shape, of its um, intensity, uh, not necessarily of color. Mm-hmm. More well, like the, uh, an awareness of its presence, its overall embodied presence, which isn't necessarily physical, but energetic. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And it's interesting because today we see, you know, more and more children who have this kind of um, dimensional awareness. They can see ghosts. They can be aware of the deceased spirits who might be friendly or not friendly. And and I think it's very interesting. Just there was this one little story you told about a little girl. And I, and I, to me, it sort of encapsulated the whole childhood <laughs> of of what you were aware of and how your mother, and I think it's so important. I, I really feel like I just love your parents. <laughs> I, I think, wow, what a lucky man to have had parents like that, um, that she was so sensitive to your experience of this little girl next door. Can, can you just talk about that for a second? Sure. Uh, we were living in Palo Alto, California at the time, and Dad was already in Morocco, and mom, uh, mom would work during the day uh, just across the street. She was a nurse and worked in this um, a clinic that was literally across the street from the house. And so at different times during the day, I would be not exactly on my own. There'd be somebody around there, but I would be out playing in the yard. And, and, and uh, um, we had this these neighbors, and they had a daughter who was about my age, so I would have been about six years old then, and she was six or seven. And she would come over, and we would play. Um, but I, I always felt a little uneasy with her, and, um, and this got intensified when uh, she, she told me one day that, that she was a witch, I don't actually think she knew just what that meant, but somehow had had heard heard of this. Anyway, she was saying, well, I have these magical powers, and unless you do what I say, I'm going to um, uh, cast a spell that will hurt your mother. And uh, and I, I and I could feel actually something around her. I could feel another presence standing in back of her at that time, which was not at all a very pleasant presence. And I felt that this, um, that what she was saying and what she was thinking of doing was actually being stimulated by this other presence. And so I, I basically just turned and walked away, and I, I just pushed against it. But I uh, tell you the truth, I really didn't know exactly what to do. But I, I just thought, well, I'm just going to I'm just going to refuse this and push against it, and I, 
turned and walked away, but I was really shaken up and probably crying. And I, I told Mom about it, uh, and she, <laughs> she was, um, well, it was interesting. She was angry, but she was very um, calm at the same time. Um, um, she was fierce is what she was because she didn't want to uh, blow it out of proportion, you know, and make me even more upset. But she was very um, fierce in the energy that she expressed in saying, no, uh, this won't happen, and, and um, no, don't, don't be afraid of this, of this little girl. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, I thought it was a very important moment because, firstly, that kind of energetic reality exists in all cultures, in any kind of superstitious pattern, and that we're talking about energetics that come from the intention of a person that might have an associate that is not physical. And yeah, so whether it's, the, right. you know, whether it's the Catholic Church doing exorcisms or a shaman helping somebody who has become occupied by some rather vile creature, that these are energetic realities. So I thought that that moment, and having read your whole book, and I read every page and loved the whole thing, and I really encourage the audience, if you want to read a beautiful spiritual autobiography, read Apprentice to Spirit, The Education of a Soul by David Spangler. Because it set the sort of the course, I felt, for the rest of your life. And then just a year later, you had really this epiphany at seven that sort of set the stage for your relationship with this being whom you call John. And maybe you can just tell us what happened to you while you were in the car when you really experienced something that not that many people experience consciously. We were living about 20 minutes away from Casablanca, and that was the big city that we would go to for shopping. So on this particular day, we, we being Mom and Dad and I, were headed into Casablanca, and I was sitting in the back seat of the car and looking out the window, as I always did. And we came up alongside um, what, what was like a, a very deep ditch, along the road that had water in it. And there were a num number of Native women who were beating clothes against the rocks. They were washing their clothes in the water in this ditch, and I was watching them. This was not at all an unusual sight, actually, but, um, but it was interesting to watch them doing this. And so I'm looking out the window, and suddenly I feel as if uh, someone is pumping air into me. It's, it's as if I'm a balloon and I'm, I'm being inflated. And I could feel myself swelling. And the next thing I knew, I was out of my body and looking down at my body. Uh, and I was actually, uh, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 feet above the car looking down. I could see the women in the ditch. I could see the car. I could see through the roof of the car as if I had x-ray vision. I could see myself sitting in the back seat. I could see Mom and Dad sitting in the front. And, and then that vision disappeared, and I was surrounded with... Um, the best way to describe it would be like clouds of, of white light or going into a, a fog of light. 
and I had a sense of, of movement and of passing through layers of this foggy light, uh, alternating with moments of, of clarity when I would uh, sort of like breaking out of the clouds and can see briefly. Uh, and every time one of those moments of clarity came, it was like here was a, a slightly different um, environment or a slightly different place. And eventually, I mean, it happened very quickly, but at the same time, it had a sense of, of, of duration, of, of depth to it, temporal depth. And I, I came to a point where I emerged from one of these cloud states, and as I did, it was like blinders um, were taken away. It was like a veil fell away, and I remember distinctly thinking at the time, uh, oh, this must be what an amnesia feels like when he remembers who he is. Because right at that, at that moment, I um, remembered my identity, my, my uh, soul identity, quite apart from being David. And... And, and it really, it was an experience of like, like waking up to a whole other level of consciousness. And you were young, Very so it, it really set the stage for the rest of your life that your book journeys. And yes, we it could, did. We could probably take 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we and, could actually. And, and do the markers, but I wanted to share just that as the foundation. I think it's very important for people to understand the path that your life has gone because this began as a child and for everybody in the quote-unquote sort of awareness movement that is not the case many people come to this as grown adults with all sorts of layers and belief systems it's much harder for people to access that beautiful spiritual soul within their body and all the beings that are connected to us from our many lives and our present incarnation. So I just wanted to be sure we touched on those things. So when you look then at your childhood, let's come forward. You under, you went to school. You experienced things as a thinking person. But you, by the time you were going to college, you already understood that the person is more than a person. The person is also a chalice. Uh, yes, that's, that's correct. Um, I had I had this um, dual state of consciousness actually, which persisted from that time when I was seven. So at one level, I was going about doing the normal things that that I would do in growing up, and yet at the other level, I was aware of this much um, different and 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 expanded consciousness. So when it came time to go to college. By this time, I was used to this transpersonal level as, as a background in my life. But I was, um, you know, on, on a personal level, I was determined to become a scientist. I wanted to do research in molecular biology. So that was my intent when I went into college. And the irony of it was, that the, the study that I went into, which was very abstract, very mental, uh, actually heightened my ability to um, be aware at this other level. It, 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 
what it really did is it brought the two levels closer together. And it's so interesting because people often make the mistake that to come into rapport with these other dimensions, you have to sort of leave your body, you have to get ungrounded. But in fact, the more grounded you are, the more capable you are to bring that sense awareness in. At least that's my personal experience of it. That's been my experience as well. It certainly is how it has worked out in my own life. And I sometimes say to people, well, I, in a way, I thought myself into this because it was the, the discipline of, of rigorous thinking that, that the college program demanded that actually created the, the chalice, we could say, for the higher parts of me to make a deeper contact. Once that happened, it became clear to me, although I, I didn't accept it right away, but it became clear after about two years of college that this was not going to be my, my path in this life, that I was not destined to become a scientist in, in the laboratory. And, and I have to say that I, um, I resisted that awareness, even while I could feel the call of it in me, but I, I, had, I really had no idea what that call meant. I mean, if I wasn't going to be a scientist, what was, what was I going to be doing? And there were lots of reasons for me to continue in the university. Um, I had scholarships. I had draft. Uh, I was deferred from the draft. My, my dad was really anxious for me to get a degree. Um, and yet uh, this sense of calling kept developing, and finally I just had to say, well, this is the path I have to go on, and I'm not at all sure what it is, but I won't know until I put my feet on it. And, and I think that in itself is such an exquisite reality that people often mistake. Um, at least it's been my experience that it's the one step at a time and the falling in love with the not knowing, whereas we live in a culture where everybody wants to know what's ahead, what's going to happen. And so rather than having this trust and faith in the big universe that's in us and that we're connected to, there's this desire to know exactly what it's going to look like. And I love the way, David, you said that there's a real difference between a call and a summons. You write that a call comes from within us. So when you had this sense that college wasn't going to be it, there was something pulling you towards the sort of spiritual dimensions, and that's not to say they're not also physical. Describe for us how you came into rapport with this individual that you then were apprenticed to and collaborated with, I guess, for 27 years. Um, I was aware by this point of a small group of non-physical beings who were, um, would pop in periodically, fairly frequently actually, um, as kind of interplaying companions, but I just never named them. I never gave them any names. They had distinct um, vibrations. And like I, like I said earlier, they formed a kind of background for my life. I honestly didn't think about them all that much. But when this call came, I and I knew I had to leave college, uh, I wasn't exactly sure what to do, but I had, I had been doing some lecturing on the side, and a couple that had heard me lecture had a center in Los Angeles, and they said, whenever you want to, uh, we'd be happy to host you. You 
come on out and, and give some talks. So I got in touch with them and explained what was happening, and they said, well, this sounds like the time, come on out. So I, I took a leave of absence from school. I just, you know, left. And at that point, I, I, I honestly couldn't do anything else. This um, sense that I had to, to take this step was so strong within me. So I went off to Los Angeles and began lecturing at the center. And I, I realized early on, you know, like probably about four or five days into being there, I, by that time I'd given a couple talks, and that if, if my path was to be a spiritual teacher, I honestly didn't know what that meant. Uh, and, and I would need some help. And I realized that um, something was happening. Uh, people were responding to me, I think in part because of my age. I was just 20. But partly because I could feel the energy coming through when I would get up to talk. So I said, I, I need help. So I was having breakfast with a friend one morning, and uh, we both felt this presence come into the room. She was not uh, clairvoyant, but, but I could see this presence in a way that um, I normally did not. Um, it, it took a very human form, a very uh, specific human form, and looked like a man in his, i say, early 40s, late 30s, early 40s, uh, slacks and a shirt and wearing a tweed jacket. I remember that very clearly with um, leather patches on the elbows. And he looked exactly like one of my... I mean, he reminded me of my college teachers, so he felt immediately comfortable to me, but then he also had this um, wonderful, loving aura. I mean, this was a, a presence that was very loving, very benign, and and he said, um, uh, he, he, he introduced himself, uh, and his name was was essentially a vibration, um, which I couldn't even begin to render in English. And and he said, well, I know you like the name John, so why don't you call me John? You can call me John. So from that point onward, I called him John. He said, um, we've worked together before, and in this life, uh, I'm the one on this side of the veil, and you're the one in, in embodiment. And we have a job a work we can do together if you're willing. And he said, I'll, I'll let you think about it, and then I'll come back, and you can tell me what, what you've decided. So then he left, and, uh, and about, it didn't take me all that long to think about it. And about a day, <laughs> following day, he came back, reappeared, and, and I said, yes, let's, let's do this. So then we began working together, and, and as you said, it was a partnership that lasted for 27 years till the early part of the 90s, around 1990, 91, when he left. When you read your book, Apprentice to Spirit, The Education of a Soul, you have a, a lot of really beautiful, I think, insights that 
dispel a lot of confusion in the quote-unquote spiritual or New Age movement. And one of them is this often repeated theme that we have to get rid of our personality, that our personality is something to overcome, that being in the physical body is a diminishment, it's an imprisonment, it's a punishment. Tell us what you know. Well, these days I've distilled essentially 40-some years of of work into what I call incarnational spirituality. But in those days, I didn't have that phraseology. And when John came, he just said, look, um, what we're going to be working on, our task, is to bring about uh, ways of uh, integrating the soul and the personality. But he said, in particular, what we're interested in is to get rid of this idea of conflict and adversariality between the human self and the embodied personality and the transpersonal self or the soul or the high self or whatever terminology one wished to use. And he said that that is creating, so that one thing is creating a significant barrier to our, meaning beings on his side, uh, being able to work with you uh, embodied individuals in, a, in an effective way. And he said the other factor is what he called the problem of the transpersonal, by which he meant that, that we had gotten into a habit as, human, as incarnate human beings of privileging the transpersonal, anything that, that comes from an, a non-embodied or a disembodied source. And he said, um, when you do that, it also makes it very difficult for us to work with you effectively because um, we cannot truly be partners. And he said, in the, he said there's, there is this spiritual shift coming, uh, actually already in process for humanity, and one of the characteristics of this shift is the ability to enter into true partnership with the non-physical worlds. In effect, it's only one world has a physical side and a non-physical side, but it's still just one world. And it was the that wholeness, that idea of wholeness, that John and his colleagues represented and one way of expressing that wholeness was for embodied consciousness, like ourselves, to be able to engage in partnership with non-physical consciousness. And John made it very clear from the beginning that he did not come as my teacher. He wasn't a master. He wasn't a guru. He wasn't a teacher. He was a partner. And, and that didn't mean that he didn't teach me a lot, and I did, in fact, learn a lot from him. And that's really the subject of the book, is what I learned through those uh, years of working with John. But he was very emphatic. Uh, I am not your teacher. I'm your friend and your partner. And it's important that you understand and value... <coughs> the spirituality and the wisdom of your embodied human self 
as much as you appreciate the wisdom that a non-physical being like him could bring. And I love there was a very particular sentence you had that the purpose of a teacher is not to bind people, but to liberate each person to their own free will. And this is the freedom and the gift of a loving mind. And that goes so much against so many of the traditions in the Western society that says you surrender your will to the priest and you surrender your will to the imam and you surrender your will to the rabbi and you surrender your will to the teacher. And I was just delighted to find somebody who agrees with my own perspective (laughs) that says, no, the glory is our free will. Talk to us a bit about the free will and being responsible with our will and our intention. You know, um, really is an important point, and, and I, I can understand why in the past there, there has been an emphasis on obedience, but, um, but there comes a point where obedience can only carry you so far, and beyond that point you have to learn to trust yourself and to... Um, and to know your own strength and, and the wisdom and sacredness that's there in you uniquely. So for me, the idea of free will, I, is, it's actually a conditional idea um, because it, it's not an absolute. I don't have absolute free will. I'm a, I'm a participant in a world filled with wills, if I, I want to look at it that way. And so in a, in a way, I'm, I, my part of my incarnational task is to honor the unique will, the unique intent of my soul that is manifesting now as David Spangler, just as your soul has a unique intent that's manifesting as you. So I, I want to honor that, and I want to be able to, to what I call stand in it, to be uh, present to it, at the same time, I want to honor that in you so that, um, so that we can actually collaborate together. I mean, the ultimate objective here, or, or at least a major objective here, is partnership and collaboration. And if you and I are going to work together, um, we will do so more effectively if we each bring our unique uniqueness to the table while respecting each other's and our differences, because out of those differences, we can create something that neither of us could do on our own. So there's this interesting aspect about free will that says, I have to, I have to be free in my ability to make choices, to be responsible, to be accountable, to, to shape and, and determine the direction of my life. But at the same time, uh, that freedom gives me the ability to m- meet and blend with others in honoring their similar freedom. And there comes a point where, in a way, we surrender to each other. We, we, um, we, we use our free will to be um, in, in a mutual will together. That something then can emerge that neither of us could give birth to on our own. But if I, if I can't stand in my own sovereignty, then, um, then I have less to bring to the table. 
because if I only bring what you think I should bring, or if I only bring what you want me to bring, and you want me to be a clone of you, then really um, you could do that by sitting by yourself at the table, you know? Well, and it's so interesting because with this kind of freedom comes a true responsibility to knowing that, as you point out, we are all part of this whole Gaian consciousness that we, the earth, all the beings, all the dimensions, it, it is a wholeness and that this wholeness is a privilege to serve. Yes, that's exactly right. When we then look at our capacity as humans incarnate to serve this wholeness that is also the consciousness of the planet and the soul of the planet and the mind or the body of the world, a lot of people think that's just a lot of talk, meaning that it's just gibberish. But in fact, it's a, it's a reality that when people open up their heart to feeling this wholeness, the life becomes more meaningful. That has been my experience, and it has been the experience that I've observed in others as well. So I would certainly agree with that. And when we look at our current time period, when we see so much strife and polarization and duality and lack of conscientiousness about whether it's how we treat the earth or how we treat women or how we treat the trees or the water, we're obviously at a point where this is a task for all of humanity to rise above this kind of um, abusiveness. Um, there's no question about that, actually. Um, you know, I, I think the issue here for me is that um, the way this has been presented in the past is through a series of shoulds. Uh, I should do this, and I should do that, and I need to be part of the wholeness of the world, and I should be more loving, and I should be open to the well-being of Gaia, and so on. Uh, what is different for me about what the consciousnesses that are, or the, the quality of consciousness that's emerging, is that it's, it appreciates, it has a, an experience of the fundamental joy and love that's at the heart of the incarnational process. And if I, if I come to the world in, in joy, that is, with a sense of, of creating joy, of bringing joy, of being a source for joy to enter my world, then my sense of, of con connection to the world and of what Gaia is uh, also undergoes a shift. Uh, let me see if I can, I can use a metaphor for what I want to say, it's like um, it's like the the it's like if you're a, a, a tree that's bearing fruit. If, you know, this is <laughs> this is actually Gibran used this long before I did. But if you're bearing fruit and no one's picking the fruit, uh, that's a pain. You there's an, a, not a fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So you. You want to, if, to be a happy fruit tree, you want to be someplace where there are people hungry for fruit. In a sense, each of us comes into this world bearing the potential of, of bringing 
bringing joy to the world, or bringing joy, let's just say that, uh, of being a generative source. But I'm a generative source in relationship to something, uh, not in a vacuum. So then, then the world becomes infinitely precious as the, as the environment that picks my fruit, so to speak. It's, it's what enables me to um, know the fulfillment of, of my life, the fulfillment of being a generative uh, embodied soul. So, you know, it, there's no should involved there. It's like the, the fruit tree isn't thinking, well, I should let people pick my fruit. It, it, bearing the fruit is part of the organic nature of the tree, and it, it wants people to pick its fruit. I hope I'm being clear. Oh, I think very clear. Uh, ah, that, that, that our, my metaphor, no, it's I think it's a beautiful metaphor true. because our nature really is to be of service in joy. I mean, there's a, there's a reverent joy about honoring the fact that we live and that I, I, I feel that. I can't say I feel it at all moments. I wish I did. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to get to that place in my lifetime where that is my natural state. But we have so many layers, as you well know, of conditioning and of patterning that are real energetics. These aren't just thoughts. These are energetic patterns. So we need to take a little break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the emerging consciousness that really is playing out all over the world and has been for many centuries, but more clearly now, and what role each of us can do in collaboration with the beings that are not in the physical world who are working with us at all times. If you've just joined us, I'm Zoe Hieronymus. David Spangler is our guest. His book, Apprenticed to Spirit, The Education of a Soul. You can also learn more at David's own website, org. Apprentice to Spirit, The Education of a Soul by David Spangler. So, David, unfortunately, we don't have another hour. We have about 10 minutes. And I think one of the things you make so clear is that this sense of the overlighting beings, these multidimensional beings, every city, every town, every organization has them. So what is their role and what is the role of human beings in terms of collaborating with them? So let me, if I may indulge in a moment of self-promotion. Please. I have a book called Subtle Worlds and and Explorer's Field Notes. Knowing we only have 10 minutes, um, there's only a little bit I can say, but if, if a reader is interested, that book would be a place to start, and it also lists other books by other authors for anyone who wants to follow through in a more detailed way. So that subtle world uh, is the title. So the the subtle worlds, for me, are every bit as, well, there's two things I want to say. One is they're every bit as vast, and indeed vaster, than the physical world that we are familiar with. And and they're also, it's a very different environment. Very, they're Obviously, they're not physical, so you could say, what are they? And they're not exactly mental, and they're not exactly emotional. They, the best term that we have, the one we most usually use, is that they are spiritual, they're energetic, they're realms of consciousness, but in point of fact, that doesn't tell us a whole lot. The 
second thing that I wanted wanted to say is that, in my experience, these are in environments. In a, they're ecosystems, and they're filled with living beings who are the equivalent of the physical creatures that we're familiar with in our physical world. Um, and and I want to point that out because um, we've, over the, the millennia, we have made the, relig- the um, subtle world the object of religious study. And so uh, beings like angels and, and nature spirits and devas and so on, um, we tend to think of them in a religious context. And since I've been aware of them all my life, they've They've had a kind of ordinariness about them for me that has allowed me to look at them in a non-religious way, but as what I call the Earth's other half, the Earth's second ecology. So it's so you have beings who um, occupy, in effect, occupy niches the same as physical beings do here, and they do work within those energetic niches, and the ones that are most, we would be most engaged with or would experience are either those beings who are the non-physical counterpart to humanity, so those would be people who have died, uh, human beings who um, are acting as teachers or guides or or guardians, or healers, or what have you, potentially partners on the inner planes. And then you have beings who are not human, but which are engaged in keeping the subtle environment that we all live in, the invisible environment, um, flowing and clean and energized and healthy, so that we can prosper within it. So, so in a sense, it's like we're surrounded with cyberspace. Uh, none of us can see cyberspace, and none of us can um, can touch it. But yet, we can use our computer and go online and engage with each other through Twitter and Facebook and any number of other means, email and so on. So cyberspace has become a very real presence for us. And within cyberspace, there are individuals and there are structures that maintain it in existence, provide the servers that, that host the websites and so on. There are the technicians. There's the people that keep it going for us. There are people who police it and try to keep out things that are um, potentially harmful. So... Those kind of equivalents in the inner world as well, and those are the beings that we would be most likely to engage with. There's so many things we don't have time to talk about tonight. Your your years with Findhorn, the Lorian, the work you do with your own association is just beautiful. Um, in in terms of where we are today and, and the role all of us can play in community with each other and with these subtle realms, is you talk, you use a beautiful word about not only collaboration, but hospitality. 
that it's about a hospitality towards this emerging world of of working in partnership with our sense of innerness and coming into contact with the inwardness of things, whether it's the trees or a person or the water or a child or the food we eat? Yes, that's that's uh, an excellent way to put it. Um, and I know that I have talked about hospitality. It's, yeah, I'm actually not sure how to put it better than what you said. Well, then we'll, <laughs> then let's let's shift to another beautiful thing you talk about, which is the loving mind. I mean, we often hear the loving heart. You don't often hear people speak to the loving mind. Loving mind was really one of those important qualities that John uh, emphasized in his training. It's really just what it sounds like. It's it's using the mind. It's thinking in appreciative and loving ways, in ways that honor and respect and are are open to difference. In a way, we we think of love as, as... something that expresses attraction and affection, and it, and it does. But there's a very powerful expression of love that is simply one of holding a space for somebody, holding a space for them to be who they are. And this is particularly loving if they are different from who we are. It's like assisting the local ecology that permits various kinds of plants to grow and for differences to be made manifest. There is that aspect of love which works toward the promulgation and fostering and support of diversity. And loving mind, to me, is one of one of those qualities. That's, that's a particular way in which it expresses itself, is in the appreciation and honoring of what is different from me, and because of that difference, can engage with me in co-creative ways that it could not do if it it were just the same. There are so many things I want to talk to you about that we're not going to be able to do tonight. Um, And maybe you'll join us on another occasion so we can talk about the Lorian Association. But one final question. Did writing this book change your own view of your own life in any way? (laughs) You know, there's a long story behind the writing of this book, actually. And it went through a couple of editors just because of changes in the publishing house. And each editor wanted to start over and and do it in his or her own way, which I can appreciate. So what it really did, what what the work of writing this book did, is it taught me how to tell my own story more comfortably. My particular inclination is to step aside and not get in the way of the message. But what my working on this book showed me was that sometimes when you put it into a personal story, it helps the message to be delivered and understood. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it didn't so much change my sense of my own life, but it definitely changed my sense of how to use my life as a teaching tool. Well, you've done a beautiful job. We're going to have to say adieu. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.